Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you. If you've got a Bible, could you turn to Leviticus chapter 17? Leviticus chapter 17, we're going to be diving in there and going through that. If you've not met me, my name's Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. Very warm welcome to you. Now, just to give you a little heads up about what's coming over the next um, few weeks in regard to the sermons. We've got four more weeks of Leviticus, including today. We've also got Mother's Day sort of sandwiched in between there, so that'll be coming as well. So we've got, um, so by the time we finish Leviticus, we'll actually be on Easter. And what has happened in the past, what's usual is we, we tend to front load our Easter sermon series where we preach up to Easter. And we've done that for many, many years. What we're doing this year is we're doing it differently. We're going to backload our sermon series. So the sermon series for Easter starts on Easter Sunday. So we'll finish Leviticus. It'll be into the kind of Easter holidays for the kids, and then the Easter Sunday will come. And what we're going to do is we're going to start our new sermon series, He is Alive, on Easter Sunday. And uh, Melanie's going to be speaking, and she's going to be speaking from, I think it's Acts chapter 9, when uh, the risen Lord Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus, and he has that dynamic encounter. So that's where we're going to begin. Then after that, we're going to look at this man, Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, and what he wrote about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we're going to look at the longest treaties in the Bible about the resurrection of Jesus, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we're going to spend six weeks going through 1 Corinthians 15, celebrating the fact that he is alive. So that's where we're heading. So we're going to go Leviticus, Mother's Day down to Christ, uh, Easter, and then we're going to run out of Easter, uh, conversion of Saul, and then uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So that's where we're heading, just so you know. But today we're into, back into the sermon series, Into His Presence, looking at the book of Leviticus. And we've been looking at this question for what is man's greatest problem? How does sinful man approach a holy God? And the book of Leviticus gives us that answer. And we've been going through the book sort of section by section. We've taken chunks at a time. Um, to help us kind of get through it uh, at a reasonable pace. And we've found out that um, how a man comes before a holy God, there are sacrifices, there's a priesthood, there are rituals, and it finally culminates in the Day of Atonement, which is what we looked at last time we were in uh, this book. And so if we put the, um, the, put the structure up for me, Rob. So what we've done is we've done that first sort of top half of the book of Leviticus, which is all about man coming into God's presence. How does man do it? And God laid out, this is how sinful man comes into my presence as a holy God. And what we're going to do now is we're going to go down the backside of Leviticus. And what we get is we get a mirroring of sections in what we're going to look at. And this section answers the question, in light of the fact that man has now entered the presence of a holy God, what is man's response to that? How do they live in response to what God has done? Because we see in chapters 1 to 16, it's all about atonement. It's all about getting right with God. In chapters 17 kind of to 26, it's all about living in light of who God is and what God has done. So it's how do we, as God's people, how did Israel respond to who God um, is? So chapters 1 to 16 deals with Israel's relationship with God. The, the remaining chapters deal with Israel's relationship with one another. How do they live as God's holy people in day-to-day -day life? And what we're entering now is a section that's often referred to as the holiness code. And holiness just means set-apartness. So God is holy. He is set-apart. He is other. God's people are to be holy. They've entered his presence. They are set-apart. How do they live? And Israel had been slaves uh, in Egypt. 
immediately prior to these events that we're looking at in Leviticus, and they had been utterly transformed by the saving, redeeming power of God. They've gone from slaves to being a free people. They were, they were no ones, didn't belong to them, and now they're God's chosen people. He says, you are mine, I've set my heart upon you, and he's been gathered together, and he's given them his law, and that's what he's done. And so they've dramatically changed, and because they've changed, they need to live differently. And we know this from our own lives. When we have significant life change, our behavior, our actions out of that have to change. This happened to me several parts in my life. Um, first thing is I became a teacher. It was my first job. Yeah, I know. I do look cute, don't I? Yeah, that was a while back. You can tell. When I got my first job as a school teacher, I was a primary school teacher, I went from student to teacher. And if you know anything about what it means to be a student, you can imagine the dramatic shift in my life. I suddenly had to be somewhere at a certain time and do stuff. Um, I had to have responsibility, not just for myself, but for 30 little darlings, five-year-olds I had. That was my first class. I had to turn up. I had to do stuff, so my life had to change. One of the biggest ones I found is I had money. They, they gave me stuff, made money for doing things. So that was a huge change in my life. After that, about six months after that, I got married. Oh, yeah, I know. When I went from being a single guy to being a married man, and as a result of that, my life had to change. Where I lived, who I lived with changed. And as a result of that, I had to live differently. My money became our money, and life changed. And um, as a result of my um, circumstances changing, and then a few years after that, I became a father. Oh, can you notice I had no gray hair there? I just want to say that. No, in all those photos, no gray hair. And now I have nothing but. I just draw your own conclusions from that. But when you become a, a parent, suddenly your life changes again because you're now responsible not just for yourself and, and a spouse, but you have a child that you're responsible for. And you think everything's got to kind of move around a bit. Everything's got to adjust. Why are you taking photos of that? Don't do that. They're, not, they're just, honestly... Goodness, I'm trying to, you know, share a little bit here. Focus. Anyway, back to Israel. Israel had been a slave nation, a slave people. Not had their own identity. God had saved them. He'd redeemed them. He'd brought them out. Uh, plagues, Red Sea, into the wilderness. And then he'd said, um, I put my heart upon you. You're going to be my people. And he's given them the law and all the stuff we've been looking at uh, in Leviticus. And so as a result of that, they are to live differently. And there are two key verses in this passage I just want to highlight before we dive in. And the first one is Leviticus 19 verse 2. It says this, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so there's an onus there on Israel because they are God's people. They've been set apart to be God's people. They've come into his presence, which we've looked at. They are to be holy because God is holy. God is described as holy as more than anything else in the entire Bible. That's who he is. That's his nature. And Israel, in response, should be like that. We skip forward a few verses. You get this in verse chapter 18. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Very famous verse. Quoted in our New Testament as well. But the response there is, you are a holy people. You are set apart like I am. The Lord said, I've saved you. I've redeemed you. I've brought you out. I am holy. You are to be holy. You come into my presence. You have the sacrifice. You have the priesthood. 
You have the, um, the purity code we've looked at. You've got the day of atonement. You can come into my presence. But as a result of that, you are to be holy. And how does that manifest? You are to love your neighbor as yourself. Those two verses are connected. Not, they don't live in isolation. You don't have one without the other. We are to love our neighbor because we've been set apart to be like God. And we are to live like he is. And he showed his love for his people. We, in turn, are, show, are to, to show love to others. And so... The, um, the people of God are to be holy, but they don't do it out of fear or out of a, a kind of a, you have to obey or you get punished. It's out of a response to who they are. They are a holy people. They have been saved. They have been redeemed. And as a result, you've been changed. Now live like this. Live in response to who you are. And if you go through these four chapters we're going to skim through today, you find this phrase coming up, I think, I read somewhere, it's about 50 times. It comes up a lot. It either says, I am the Lord your God, or it says, I am the Lord, or, or even the reference that I am holy, therefore you'll be holy. And that phrase comes up again and again, and it's basically God saying, this is what I'm like, therefore you be like that. This is who I am. He says, I am the Lord. It's, a, it's a, him calling to his character, saying, look at me, this is what I'm like. I've saved you, I've redeemed you, I've set my love on you. You should be like that with other people. You should love and care uh, for other people. And these chapters we're going to look through are basically a commentary on these two verses. about God is holy, God is set apart, we are a set apart people, Israel is a set apart people, therefore you should live in a certain way as response to that. So big idea, as God's people in God's presence we are to live differently from the world around us. As God's people in God's presence we are to live differently from the world around us. And we're going to roll through these four chapters and they deal with the areas of worship, sex, lifestyle and judgment. So the first one, worship. Chapter 17 deals with the um, whole area of worship, and it begins with a command from the Lord, as many of these chapters do, because the Lord is speaking, so these aren't suggestions, these are what God has said to his people, and we've seen this repeatedly through Leviticus. God sets down divine ordinances that they, the people are to carry in terms of the priesthood and the sacrifices and other things, and this chapter is about worship. The Lord has already told Israel, this is how you approach me. We've seen the sacrifices, we've seen the priesthood. Now he outlines how not to do it. How you don't do it. He said, this is how you do it. And sometimes he also has to say, now don't do it like this. And there's two things he highlights in here. He says, you have to do it in the right place and you have to do it in the right way. The right place for the people of God at this time was the tabernacle. And we've dealt with this every time we've, um, we've preached through the bit of Leviticus. It was the tent in the middle of the camp with all the people count around a million plus all around and in the middle was the tent where God's presence was and the sacrifices were made and the priesthood uh, ministered. That's where you came to worship the Lord. He called you there. That's where you to do it. And in this section, he particularly mentions the peace and fellowship offering, which is about relationship and in connecting the, the, the worshippers, the priests, and to the Lord. Um, and also about the burnt offering are pulled here. And it's basically saying, when you want to worship, you have to come to the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was the place God ordained. It was where the priesthood was. It was public, so everyone got to come and see. It wasn't hidden away in private. That's where you come to worship. And it applied not just to Israel, the people. It also said any strangers come amongst you, because there are people who are brought into the people of God who weren't ethnic uh, descendants of Abraham. He says they too have to comply. It's all of you. You're all caught up in worshiping me, and you are to come into uh, my presence at the tabernacle. That's where you do it. And if you read there, you get the really weird um, bits where he talks about goat demons. Anyone listen to it and found out, where are the goat demons from? There's suddenly goat demons turn up. And that was just a, 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 a reference to nations around how they worship, where, where they worship. He says, no, you don't do that. You don't go and be like them. You come worship at the tabernacle. 
um, where I am the one uh, who is to be worshipped there. And he says, you've also got to do it in the right way, which talks about uh, the blood. We've come, ac- we've come across that several times. The blood is sacred in sacrifices where the life was. We saw it in the Day of Atonement in rit- uh, the ritual purity section about how we do it. So the blood is important. And it's important going back to even to Noah's days and going forward into the New Testament, we see it. And so how you deal with that in, in the ter- sort of sacrifice, you have to follow God's way. You can't do it. Nations round about would have eaten the blood, drank the blood out of um, the sacrifice. And God says, you don't get to do it that way. The blood is sacred. It's, it's how we atone for sin. And so that's what they're to do. So when it comes to worship, people of God had to worship in the right place and in the right way. Then we come on to the next section, chapter 18, which deals with sex. Everyone say sex. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's like when you suddenly first find out your parents did it. And you're like, oh, oh, really? Yeah, just saying. <laughs> Anyway, two things about this. First one is authority. The second one is standards. When it comes to sex, God sets the rules. He made it. He set it apart. He devised it. He said, this is a gift to you, but this is how you're going to use it. And the big thing that comes up in this chapter seven times, it says you don't get to act like the people around you. You don't get to do that. Go through, find them, count them. It comes at the beginning and the end of the chapter seven times. You are to stand totally apart because you are my holy people. You are to live differently. God designed sex. He gets to make the rules for it. And uh, we belong to him. And so we have to act his way. So Israel are his people. You've got to act this way. Then it sets, it's, and then he sets standards. Sort of the back end of the chapter is all about standards of how you're doing it. Depending on what translation you read it, it has this phrase, uncover nakedness, which is basically just sexual relations. It's different uh, translations use the different um, uh, wording there. And just if it wasn't getting icky enough, wait for this one. The first section it deals with is incest. <laughs> And it gives 12 examples. Yes, I counted them of what you're not supposed to do. Man with his mother, stepmother, sister or half-sister, granddaughter, stepsister, paternal aunt, maternal aunt, maternal uncle's wife, daughter-in-law, brother's wife, stepdaughter or step-granddaughter, wife's sister. (sighs) And breathe. Basically, he said, they are off limits. And the interesting thing, why are they there? Why does he list them? Because actually, what commentators, scholars think is they actually dealt with the household relations. Because we think of the family kind of the nuclear, it's kind of two parents, 2.4 kids. That's family to us. But actually, in the ancient Near East, it was much wider than that. The family groupings would have aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and grandparents, and it would just grow out and out and out. And so the family for them was that much bigger. And so where's God saying you're not going to play around with people in your family? That's what he meant. Actually, you're meant to keep it. And it's a way of protecting the family. It's a way of keeping the family unit strong and not having illicit relations, sexual relationship within it. He then goes on, and there are five more things addressed as you go through this chapter. He talks about sexual menstruation. He talks about adultery. He talks about offering children to Molech, which was the god of the Ammonites, which were around them, which involved sexual activity and child sacrifice, which is horrific. He talks about homosexuality and also bestiality. And basically, God is saying there are standards with how you use sex. There are standards with what you can do, where you can do it, and who you can do it with. And God's made it super clear. You don't get to act like the world around you. You don't get to define it. 
I do. I'm the Lord. I made it. I am holy. You are holy. You are to live differently. And there are consequences for for Israel if they failed in this area. He says, you're going to go into the land of Canaan. We looked at this when we did the book of Joshua. They took the promised land that had been promised to Abraham hundreds of years beforehand. And in there were the Canaanites, which were driven out. And he says, if you act like them, you will be removed from the land. It even uses this language, vomit. This is just getting better and better, isn't it, in the imagery. It says, I will vomit you out of that land if you do not live my ways, my holy ways. And if you know, when we looked at Elijah, we knew the, 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 the trajectory of Israel. And where was it going? Exile. Because they had failed to follow God's law. And so when it comes to this area, God's the one who sets, sets, the, um, sets uh, the standards and we are to live up to that. Next chapter, chapter 13, chapter 19. Now this one... Uh, deals with what it means for Israel to be a holy people on a more day-to-day basis. And it it talks about how they should um, deal with their fellow man and woman. How do they do those interactions? And it begins again by God saying, I'm holy, therefore you are to be holy. You are to live a holy life. And this is one, if you ever read this chapter in isolation, it's a good um, kind of where's Wally game. You can find the Ten Commandments in it because they're hidden in there somewhere. It covers all of the Ten Commandments, not explicitly like you would read the Ten Commandments in Exodus, and we preached through that a couple of years back, but actually they're all in there. So how we should live our life is kind of manifested, and two themes that are covered in this chapter are to honour God, and they are to love their neighbour. So how are they to honour God? Well, the first thing it says is they're meant to honour their parents. You're like, well, what does that mean? Well, the reason you're to honour your parents is because they're the authority over you, and we learn to submit to authority first at home under our parents and once we've learned we can submit to our authority at home then it it can work out wider and we submit to authorities outside the home like governments and laws and God ultimately who's over it all anyway so we are to honour our parents and by doing so we honour the Lord and this doesn't just happen when we're young as we grow we still get to have to honour our parents it's told we ought to honour the Sabbath because Sabbath is the day that God gave to mankind for that you're going to have one day a week where you don't work You're going to rest. You're going to stop. And by doing that, you acknowledge that I'm God and you're not. You can't get it all done. And so you rest and enjoy what God has made for you. And in the creation order, six days of activity. And on the seventh one, you stop. And that, in another way, we honor God. It talks about idolatry. And idolatry is basically worshiping created things over the creator. You don't get to put things above God. You don't get to put things that you've made with your hands. And for them, it would be idols that they would physically see and in our 21st century kind of enlightened mind we think oh they're so foolish pagans but we do it all the time we take created things our money our homes even our children and we elevate them above God and we worship them and we sacrifice and give time to them and we don't give to God it talks about sacrifices generally that we are to do them in the right place again um and how they're meant to be done because when the sacrifices are put in the right place and they're brought to the tabernacle and what's there actually it provides for the priesthood because we looked at that the sacrifices so actually you're providing for God's ministers who are working there if you take that away from them they've got no income because their job is full time to work at the tabernacle it also talks about stuff there's a great bit about trees who caught the bit on trees there's a weird bit it says when you go into the land and you plant trees and trees are important because they produce the fruit which they could eat and trade it was effectively their money like it was literally a money tree. He says, right, you're going to go into the land, you're going to take land, you're going to plant all these trees, which is great. He says, oh, but the first three years, you're not allowed to eat from them. Fourth year, everything goes to God. 
fifth year, then you can eat from the fruit of the tree that's come. And basically saying God's putting in there to remind that your stuff is his and he has given to you it on loan. You are merely a steward. So everything you have, your money, your job, all the possessions, the house, the car, ultimately it's all God's. And actually says, I've given it to you to, to manage and I'm going to help you with this. It's why we talk about giving in the local church, that the money you give, we tithe is what we sort of start with. But we're to give it. It's a recognition that it all belongs to God. It's not yours. And also in that section, there's a big bit about do not imitate those around you. It keeps coming back to that theme. You're not like the world. Don't live like them. Don't be like them. It talks about eating blood, slaughter to animals, which we've covered. It talks about fortune telling. It talks about marking the body, um, cutting hair that associated kind of with mourning practices. It talks about trying to communicate with the dead. They were all linked up. And basically says, you don't get to act like that. If you know your Bible, fast forward to 1 Samuel 28, and even the king of Israel started doing that. So how far they've fallen. And God says, don't act like that. Don't be like that people. And the second thing he says, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. So there's being set apart, there's honoring God, but there's also living the life. And it deals with you've got to help the needy and the stranger. It talks about serving the poor, loving the poor. It talks about this thing called gleaning, where they used to have a field of, of harvest, And as they harvested the field, they weren't allowed to go to the edge of the field so they could harvest the middle of the field, but the very edges they had to leave. And anything they dropped during the gathering of the harvest had to be left. If it fell to the floor, you couldn't pick it up. The reason was that served the poor and the needy in the community because they could go there and work. So it wasn't a handout, but they could go and work and they could have something for themselves. This is illustrated beautifully in a book we've preached through, the book of Ruth, where this is, Ruth was one of those Poor, came back, had nothing, but she went to the field of Boaz and she was working hard all day to provide for her and Naomi and they could eat because of it. And, and God's saying, you are going to serve the poor and the needy among your, uh, your community and that's one of the ways I want you to do it. If you are going to pursue holiness, greediness and stinginess does not fit. You cannot be that person and still be holy before God. It talks about how we have to treat others. We're not to steal from them. We're not to lie from them. We're not to pervert the course of justice in Israel, it says. So that means you don't advantage or disadvantage anybody based on their uh, kind of their, their, their social kind of status. That means you don't give extra advantage to the rich and the wealthy because they might look on you. You don't disadvantage the poor or the needy because they have no power, they have no status. You don't get to act like that. We're to be respectful for others. We're not to withhold wages from those who have earned them. We're not to treat those with disabilities worse than others. We're not to show impartiality to the rich and the poor. We're not to harbor ill feelings in our personal conducts. We're not allowed to run people down, backbite about them, gossip about them. Our speech should be uplifting and encouraged. We're not to slander, bear a grudge. And all of that comes under the big heading of love your neighbor as yourself. So it's important as a holy people for Israel, God says, right, you're going to honor me, but you also have to honor one another around you because they come together they're like, you know, peas in a pod. You can't just take one and leave the other and do it one way around. And then finally, uh, chapter 20 is all about judgment, all about judgment. And this is not uh, pleasant reading. It gives uh, an account of how, what are the punishments if you break the stuff from the previous chapter? What do you do? In the previous chapter, it talks about um, to the individual, don't do this. In this chapter, it talks to the community. If someone's done that, what do you do? We found someone 
doing one of those things. And it teaches us two things. It teaches us that sin is serious and that there are consequences. It says in there, the punishment put to death, that's what it says in my translation, is repeated seven times in a chapter. Seven times put to death. This stresses the ultimate gravity of the crime. And one of, I think, our biggest problems today is we don't take sin seriously. God, who is holy, does. And what's happening in this thing is this is how you as a community respond because the reality is that sin isn't just about you, it's about everybody around you. Your sin, the sin of Israel from an individual will infect everything. It's no such thing as just personal sin. It's a community thing and everyone is being affected by that. And so when sin is in the midst, you have to be ruthless with it. You have to deal with it. And again, God says to his people Israel, don't imitate the pagans. Don't be like them. Don't do what they're doing. And again, the, the child sacrifice to Moloch comes up, uh, use of mediums trying to discern the future. It's saying don't live like them. Don't be like them. Take sin seriously because uh, God's law is holy, he is holy, and our falling short of that is sinful. And then finally it drops this on them and it says there will be consequences failure to follow God's law failure to do it, it says you will be detested by the Lord verse 23 again it has that lovely image of being vomited out of the land and if you follow the story of the people of Israel that is what happens they are to be different God has given them his presence he has given them the law he has given them the sacrifices and the priesthood he gives them the land which comes on to in Joshua he's saying I've given you all this therefore you to act a certain way you are to be um, pure and separate and he uses this image which comes up a few times he says you are not to whore after other gods that's how God views it when we leave, forsake him forsake what he's given us and go after what the world would offer says you are whoring after them which is a horrifically graphic image but gets the point across of this is how God feels about it so chapters 17 18 19 20 of Leviticus these reflect how God's people are to live in the world and reflect God's holiness to those um, are outside and it touched every single area of life if you noticed touched the workplace, it touched sex, it touched family, it touched the stranger, it touched how you manage your money. And God's saying, I'm over all of it. There's no part of your life that is outside of my kind of purview. You don't have a separate bit that that's, I'll give God that bit, Sunday morning, 10 till, you know, half 12, unless I'm on kids and then it's got to be earlier. But, you know, I don't give you that and the rest is mine. No, no, God says, I, all of it, all of it's mine. And I give some of it back to you to use, but some of it I expect uh, for me and serving with my people. And God's people were to reflect this in all that they did. And they were to have, uh, they were to sacrifice, they were to come to the tabernacle. They were to be uh, his people separated uh, from the world around us, even though they lived amongst them. So the question then comes, we've read that. If you've been listening to that during the week, kind of, wow, there's an awful lot there. What do we do with that? How do we kind of process that well the best place is always to start with Jesus so let's start with him Jesus was and is God the son who came to earth as a human man died on the cross rose from the dead ascended into heaven and when he came to earth as a human man he lived totally submitted to his father in heaven he lived in total obedience to all the laws that God had laid down in terms of 
purity, in terms of holiness, in terms of sacrifices, in terms of the festivals, which we'll come to later, in terms of the Ten Commandments, which we find in Exodus and Deuteronomy. He lived a perfect holy life because he was perfect and holy to the point where when at the end of his life and he was put on trial, no one could get the charges to stick because he hadn't done anything wrong. He was perfect. He was in effect bulletproof legally because no one could actually come and say he's done anything wrong because he hadn't. He honored his father in heaven in everything he said and did. I only do what I see my father doing. His lifestyle lived out what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. He cared for the broken and the outcast, the despised and the shunned, the sick and the suffering. He, had, he showed no um, partiality to rich or poor, male or female, young or old. They all came to him. We're reading Christmas of the Cross uh, as a church in the book of Mark. I can't remember where we're up to, nine, I think, chapter nine. The thing that strikes me again and again when I was preparing this and looking at it is thinking, Jesus lived it all out. He did it all. He did it all and he lived it all out. He was perfect in this. He lived it out and then he taught his disciples to do the same and to pass it on. He completely fulfilled chapter 17, 18, and 19. When you read that and think this is how you're supposed to be, you can just put Jesus did it, Jesus did it, Jesus did it. If it was an exam, it'd be tick, 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 100%. A++. A++++ if they keep adding things to the, you know, the grace markings. He completely fulfilled that. He was totally honoring to God and loving his neighbor and everything he did. Yet, what happened? They killed him. He died on a cross willingly in our place for our sin. So he fulfilled chapter 20. He fulfilled chapter 20. Jesus was perfect. He didn't break any of his laws, God's laws. Yet, he still died. So when you read chapter 20 and talk about the punishment, this deserves this, this deserves death, this deserves death, what do we say? Thank you, Jesus, that you took it so I don't have to. Because I read those rules, I read those laws, and I get increasingly uncomfortable. First of all, I get self-righteous. I know so many people who've done this, and then I realize, oh, crumbs, so have I. Not just in my self-righteousness, but I fail. And even when we read Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, how he takes things and he extends them, how we're to be. Even if you look at a woman lustfully, you're like, oh, crumbs. But Jesus died in our place for our sins to take that punishment. He took the judgment we deserve. So if you are a believer here, you do not have to face that punishment. That's good news. You do not have to face that punishment. The Bible actually says you have been made holy because of Jesus' death. We live holy in response to who God is, but you've been made holy. You are righteous and holy. The Bible says you are a saint. Feeling saintly after this week? At work, at home, children? God bless them. No, but God says you are because I've made you that. You have right standing with him. You have been declared not guilty. You've been adopted into his family. He is your father in heaven. And he is God is transforming you day by day more and more into his image that is good news if you're not a believer here you stand guilty before a holy God period there is a way out come to Jesus otherwise you have to face the punishment for your sin if you're a believer that punishment has been paid for not because you're good you aren't but because he is good and he has saved you 
And so if you're not a believer here, I want to offer you the opportunity to come to know Jesus for yourself. Put your faith and trust in him, that he can take that punishment that you royally deserve. So just to finish, what does this mean for us here now? Some practical stuff to kind of round this out, and then we'll come back and we'll worship God. Two things. As believers, as followers of Jesus, we are, number one, to live lives of holiness. We are to live lives of holiness. We have been made holy because of Jesus. We don't have to earn that. We don't have to strive for that. We don't have to read our Bible every day, come to church. We have been made that, and that is good news. That is a reason to celebrate. But in light of that, how we live matters. We've been filled with God's Spirit. We are being transformed day by day. We have a Father in heaven to call on. We have Jesus' death and resurrection to stand on. But as a result, we are to live lives that are different. We are to be part of the worshiping community of God's people. They at the tabernacle, we have the church. That's where we're to be, part of God's people. We come together, we worship, we hear the word, we meet throughout the week. We have small groups, we do life together. That's where we're to be. We're to live out um, our faith together. That also extends into our workplaces. How we conduct ourselves nine to five matters. How we live out there, what the example our colleagues, our bosses, our subordinates think of us matters. How we work with our physical neighbors in the house around us, if we reported, if they say you're a good neighbor or not. How we handle our finances matters. It's his money. We need to come in line with what he wants us to do with it. How we work in our family, how we deal with our sex life, all comes under God's care and God's grace and God's scrutiny. And God is calling us to be holy people, to live in response to what he's done. And so you know what's going on in your life. You know what the Holy Spirit's nudging you about. But are there things that you need to deal with and get right before God? Are there things you need to repent of? Other things you need to come to him, knowing that the punishment has been taken in Christ, hallelujah, but you still need to get right. You need to receive grace. You need to say, sorry, God, for that. You need to come into God's community, be part of that, live lives together. And the second thing is we are to love those around us. God's grace and mercy that has been poured out on us as individuals and us as a local body of believers cannot terminate on us. We are meant to be also like a conduit, a flow. It's meant to come to us and then flow out to those around us. How do we show love, mercy, and grace to the broken, the outcast, the despised, the shunned, the sick, the suffering, the rich, the poor, male and female, young and old? How do we actively show that out? What is God calling you to do? He's just calling you to work in whatever place you are. You know your world, if I put it like that, your home where you live who lives in that home, who lives around that home, where you spend most of your time out and about, whether it's with school or a paid job or voluntary hours or with wider family networks. How are we showing love, grace, and mercy to those around us? How are we doing that? Because that is the response God has called us to. Okay, I'm going to pray. Do you want to stand? Can the band come up? I'm going to pray. We're going to finish, and then we're going to worship the Lord um, together. Maybe you just want to close your eyes, open your hand. I just want to lead you in a bit of a response, and then we'll um, we'll sing. Okay, it's always good to start with truth. 
always good to start with the truth. If you look at some of the New Testament letters, Paul always writes down, this is what God's like, this is what he's done, and then he asks people to do things. So we're just going to remind ourselves of truth. Lord God, we thank you that you are a holy God. We thank you that you are set apart, you are other, you are higher, you are greater than us, Lord God. And we thank you, by your grace, you have called us into your presence. You made a way where there was no way. We couldn't come alone. We wouldn't come alone. But by your love, your mercy, you have called us and you have drawn us in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death and resurrection on the cross. That makes that possible. That because of that, the punishment has been paid. You've taken it. We don't get it. And I want to thank you for that, Lord. I want to thank you that we are now a set-apart, holy people. And that nothing we do or nothing that happens to us changes that dynamic. We stand on holy ground because we are holy. We have been declared not guilty. We're part of a great company that lives throughout the world of holy men and women and children who love you and honor you, Lord. And I thank you for that. Lord God, and I ask now for your grace upon us that we can walk in that holiness, Lord Jesus. Where we fail, Lord, where we know we fail, even this week, God, we pray for your forgiveness. If you know what something is before, Lord, why don't you just talk to him now and say, bring it before God. Some of you are playing with things at work, in your relationships, in your finances that you know before God are not right. Why don't you bring it before him now and put it right? call out to him and say, God, forgive me for that. I repent, I turn around, I come back to you. And Lord God, we want to say, as your people, we want to live holy lives. We want to live set apart, Lord God, and we want to show love to our neighbor. We want to love them as you would love them. Lord God, we ask you to open our eyes to see, even this week, even today, as we leave this place and go out to work, tomorrow morning, the alarm goes off and, oh, a new day, a new week. Give us grace to love those around us, our colleagues at work, people in our our schools and the classrooms and the places we find ourselves, our neighbors. Give us ways to love and serve and care for them, even just the strangers we meet just around in life. Even if just saying thank you to the guy who drives the bus. God, let us show love and mercy and care to those around us. And God's people said, Amen.